according to his promise. I don't hear myself. Is the speaker on? According to his promise. Is the microphone on? The receiver. All right. I'm coming through speakers now. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and then we will be moving over to Matthew chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Verse 36 says, There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak to him, to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. There's a fair amount that could be done, I think, in this text, uh, not necessarily in a format such as we have here on Wednesday mornings, uh, but paralleling verse 25 with verse 38, where Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel, the paraklason of Israel, and looking for the redemption of Jerusalem in verse 38. And I think the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem are parallel concepts that uh, could be linked together and really developed into uh, really a, a beneficial Israelology, a beneficial view of Israel and what their destiny is, their purpose, the, the, the plan of God for Israel as an earthly nation in the midst of other earthly nations, and so forth. I think uh, that, that this passage here and the linking of those two verses there are extraordinary for Israel studies. Uh, we will not, however, be engaged in that in this study this morning, but I wanted to bring that to your attention this morning as something that would be very fruitful in a dispensational sense as it pertains to Israel. Um, but certainly not as it pertains to the church. All right, in our study, we are wrapping up then, and I try to enlarge this. This is simply the Harmony of the Gospel page that we have from, uh, from your handouts to show you where we are. We have completed the introductions to Jesus Christ in these three portions. We gave those in the introductory uh, lessons of our study. And we're getting ready to really wrap up the birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. And this section that has 17 portions to it, uh, we, are, we have wrapped up number 11, the witness of Simeon and Anna. And we're ready this morning to move on to number 12, the visit of the Magi. And so you see where we are there. Uh, all that's remaining then in this section, the escape to Egypt and the murder of the babies, which really goes along with our material this morning in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, and then from Egypt to Nazareth with uh, Jesus is just a couple short verses. Childhood, a couple short verses. Uh, really the last significant event after the visit of the Magi, the escape to Egypt and return, 
and then the incident in the temple when he was 12 years old. Just those last two items, and uh, then we'll be ready to move on to truths about John the Baptist, uh, material that's primarily found in the Gospel of John. A little bit just in terms of introduction in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but ultimately we're going to spend the next several lessons in the Gospel of John as we uh, examine the early portion of the Lord's ministry, as we examine the work of John the Baptist. All right, all of that then being said, let's take time for prayer, assure that distractions are set aside, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to assemble together and receive instruction. Father, we ask for concentration. We ask for an understanding. We desire to learn your word, not simply to become uh, uh, academically equipped, but, Father, to treasure this word in our heart, to implant it within our soul, let it dwell richly within us, and indeed, Father, let it find good soil, that it might spring forth and bear fruit 30, 60, 100-fold, whatever you desire to do with this word in our lives, Father. We thank you for the privilege we have to assemble, the freedom we have in this nation to do so, the grace financial provision that enabled us to be here, the transportation to get here, and all the rest. Father, it is a grace provision that we have the word of God this morning, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so, and looking at the, uh, I'll just go ahead and exit that out. And looking at the visit by the Magi, we can turn to Matthew chapter 2 then. Matthew chapter 2. And we will look at the Magi. As far as the I'm really starting to think we're going to want to get multiple headsets here (laughs) between uh, all the different speakers that we've had. All right. Uh, Matthew 12, 1 through, uh, Matthew 2, 1 through 12. The last glimpse that we've had in the Gospel of Matthew focused on the angel's message to Joseph in chapter 1 and the aftermath of that where uh, Joseph awoke from his sleep, it says in Matthew 1, 24. Uh, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Then all the material we've had since the birth, since the manger scene, has been over in the Gospel of Luke with the shepherds, with uh, the things that we've seen there. But now we return to the Gospel of Matthew. We begin here with chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And the verse here in verse 6 is a quotation from Micah. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Verse 7, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come to worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell into the, to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. All right. So, verses 1 through 12, and dealing with the visit of the Magi. There is a little bit that we will touch on with respect to Herod and his intentions, uh, but his intentions don't really come clear until verses 13 and following. Uh, verse 16, when he sends forth the agents and they massacre the babies, that is coming up, but that will be uh, in future lessons and in uh, future points of the, uh, in fact, the very next point of the uh, Harmony of the Gospels where we'll examine that. We will see simply from verse Eight, the uh, deceit on Herod's part, where when he says uh, that I too may come and worship him, that, that this is just a bold-faced lie. This is the, the forked tongue of the serpent who likes to speak flattering words, while in reality he's preparing his venom for, uh, for the strike. But we'll deal more with that in uh, some upcoming classes as we uh, get to that point in our Harmony of the Gospels. For now, though, we're looking at the... Uh, uh, the visit of the Magi in these 12 verses, and we want to set the context for this. And first of all, point one, up to two years has gone by. Up to two years has gone by in between Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2. In fact, in between the last event of what we've looked at um, with the shepherds, with the uh, presentation in the temple, with uh, Simeon and Anna and all the things that we've been dealing with in the Gospel of Luke, we have really jumped forward uh, up to two years, given the, the, the time frame that's established with verse 7 and with verse 16. Now we say up to because we don't precisely know. We don't precisely know that, that uh, this is, uh, uh, the events of chapter 2 here take place on Jesus' second birthday. We don't know that. We just know the time frame from when the star appeared. And so hopefully, um, we can understand that as well. Uh, again, verse 7, Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Now, they're over there in the east, minding their own business, doing their own Magi work, you know, uh, and a star appears. Does that star necessarily have to have come on the day that Jesus was born? See, could it, could it have come ahead of time? <laughs> you know, could it have come a year before he was born, and so that um, that they began their travels. Remember, you don't just hop on Southwest Airlines and fly from uh, Babylon to Jerusalem, see, and, and get there the, the same day. This is a journey that takes multiple days, takes several weeks, depending on the caravan routes they follow, and and so forth. Uh, particularly since uh, they're coming from the east, and they had to actually cross into Roman territory. They had to cross a, a, a very contested Roman frontier uh, at that time, if you study the history of the Roman Empire and where the limits of their frontier were and the, the, uh, 
the real distrust that they had to the Parthian regions to the east there. He recognized that considerable time was taken for these magi to actually arrive. And considerable divine uh, protection was offered in order to get these magi here from the east. So, obviously the Lord could have given an advance warning. This, this uh, angel in the form of a star could have uh, been sent ahead of time. Not necessary that, uh, that he, the, the star was sent on the very day. But that's, uh, this is giving an upper limit as opposed to a precise time frame. Again, verse 16, when Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all his vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. When he goes to massacre the babies, he massacres the two-year-olds and under. Again, we're not establishing a fixed time frame, but rather the, the upper range, the upper limit. In other words, uh, you know, better safe than sorry, or, you know, better to shoot high and, and get what you're aiming for there. So we don't know either. In the Harmony of the Gospels, we have uh, fixed a date for this, but we have fixed it as an approximate date. Again, Herod dies in 4 BC. So we have certain limits there that we understand from secular sources in terms of dating where, uh, where the limit of this could, could possibly take place. Point two. Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem for the purpose of worshiping the king of the Jews. Worshiping. The primary application of this passage is worshiping. The adoration and devotion that God himself and only God is worthy of. Magi from the east. In the Greek, that's M-A-G-O-I. Mu, Alpha, Gamma, Omicron, Iota. having issues with my Greek font these days, and I'm not sure why. That's a Biblia LS font, which I don't like as well as the Galatia SIL font, but I can't get the Galatia font to work. All week long, it's been giving me troubles. But you can still see the M-A-G-O-I, Magoi. All right, plural of Magos, M-A-G-O-S. There's even a footnote here which I find um, informative in my New American Standard text uh, for the reference to the Magi. It says, a cast of wise men specializing in astronomy, astrology, and natural science. We'll do a little bit better than that in uh, the course of looking at them here this morning. Subpoint A. Their number is not stated, nor does Scripture call them kings. All right? So if you're particularly fond of we three kings of Orient are, um, that's fine. I won't dispute your fondness for any particular Christmas song. But the number of them being three and the nature of them being kings and their particular given names are all a part of Roman tradition and legend and are not a part of the biblical record. All right. The Magi, or the Magoi, were Babylonian and Persian astrologers who had tremendous influence in the eastern thrones. And we're going to look at Daniel 2.2, but I'm also, before I go to Daniel 2.2, I'm going to go to Genesis and show you something from Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1, so join me there on our way to Daniel 2.2. 
And we can find these guys not only in the east, we can also find them, if we want to remain in Genesis, we can find them in Egypt. Pharaoh had a staff of uh, sorcerers, those who uh, contended with Moses, for example. But when um, the sun and the moon and the stars are established here, reading from Genesis 1, verse 14. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. All right, this is in keeping with God's purpose for the universe, in in keeping with God's purpose for um, creating the patterns of the stars, the patterns of the planets, the patterns of the uh, heavenly bodies as they move. Now, there are... The extraordinary significant uh, events and then the normal events, all determined here in verse 14. Let me just read the rest of this. Let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser night to govern the night. He made the stars also, and God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, in verse 18, and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness, and God saw that it was good. All right. There's a whole understanding here of the placement of the sun, the moon, and the stars in governing and in um, designating. All right. And I think we want to focus on those words there in verse 14. Let them be for signs. Let them be for signs. Those are the unusual circumstances. And for seasons and for days and for years. Those are the normal circumstances all right so in normal circumstances the stars and their patterns and their constellations and their travels and so forth uh, are consistent and every ancient culture and modern culture has noticed that they are consistent they've noticed the constellation patterns they've noticed their travels through the skies and the particular seasons and all the rest this is normal this is what god has established for the fixing of as it says here seasons for seasons, for days, and years. All right? And uh, this is for normal circumstances. When the stars flee, <laughs> that's not normal. All right? And that indicates that something extraordinary is about to happen. In Second Advent, this, in fact, is going to occur. When the stars of heaven shall fall, and the star, the sign of the Son of Man appearing, shall come and bring indeed great terror upon the earth that the astronomical phenomena preceding Armageddon is going to terrify the demonic forces and, and cause them to realize that Christ is returning and there's not a thing they can do about it. They, they try. <laughs> they want to. They gather all their full demonic might at Armageddon to resist the Son of Man when he appears, but uh, it's not going to work. All right. Now, turning over to Daniel, then... Daniel, Hosea, Joel, chapter 2. We can take a look at these guys. So, what I wanted to emphasize and stress from the standpoint of Genesis chapter 1 is that um, the observation of heavenly phenomena as far as tracking the days and the seasons, that's legitimate. And we have, God has designed order in creation. And God has designed a calendar with respect to the 
year. And we, we recognize the seasons come and the seasons go. We have spring and summer and autumn and winter and then it's spring again. And we recognize that this is a system that the Father has put in place. And within the confines of what God has established, it's legitimate. All right? But obviously what Satan likes to do is he likes to take what God has designed and pervert it. He likes to take what God has developed and and uh, twist it into things that it was not designed to do. And for example, worshiping these stars <laughs> is inappropriate. Uh, serving the angels rather than serving God is inappropriate. And with respect to the fallen angels, of course, who love to d- redirect the worship away from the Father into themselves, then astrology comes along as a satanic practice to twist what God has designed the stars to do. See, the stars in their normal movements uh, are normal. <laughs> it's what God designed for us to track the seasons. Uh, but, of course, the demons develop this thing where we can look at stars and we can foresee the future and we can tell future events and we can worship the host of heaven rather than worshiping the, the creator of the heavenly bodies in keeping with his design. Now, in the book of Daniel, we have these guys. And I have in the reference here Daniel 2.2, 2, uh, but... In reality, they're introduced prior to that in in chapter 1. These young captives that are taken away, uh, Daniel and his friends and others, they were, uh, in Daniel 1.3, they were some of the royal family and of the nobles. We don't know uh, Daniel's heritage other than he is Judean. He is of the tribe of Judah. He is related to uh, the king. He is related to the line of uh, Zedekiah or possibly uh, one of the previous kings, Josiah. Uh, somehow he's related here to the royal family. We don't know the precise lineage. Um, he's not in direct lineage, but he's a cousin of some sort. Some of the royal family and of the nobles. This would include perhaps not just simply from the tribe of Judah, but nobility from the other tribes as well. Youths in whom was no defect, who are good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge. Endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge. Now these terms here, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, this is what the Word of God supplies. See, now a pagan king can look at this and say, hey, these are good qualifications to have for political service. But these are the very terms that the Word of God supplies. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge. That these are, these are Bible students. These are young men that have been raised up in the Word of God as far as the Old Testament has been revealed to this point of time. Nebuchadnezzar and his associates say, hey, these guys would be good for governmental service. Who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And so they're going to be indoctrinated into the Chaldean educational system, which includes religious education and all the rest. Now among them, from the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now, as I said, um, the members of the nobility could have been from other tribes. uh, You know, Zebulun uh, nobility, Asher nobility, the, the, uh, Benjamin, all, all the other tribes would have had their nobility, but these particular ones were from Judah. There's no question about that. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they're given new names. Belteshazzar, 
Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. These are all pagan names, all associated with the Babylonian religion, all associated with the native deities to Babylon. All right, and uh, if you want to do more on this, you can get it in the Through the Bible Study Guide or you can get it in the Daniel notes that uh, we have available. So, um, then in the process of all this, they get educated for two years. Uh, glance on down now to verse 18. At the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them. Out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. God gave educational blessings to these four students. He blessed them in their Babylonian collegiate studies. And I find that to be amazing. <laughs> you know? Absolutely amazing. See, God will use tools where he wants them. And so students in secular realms, students that are attending secular colleges and so forth, they're studying engineering, they're studying whatever. If that's where God wants them, God will place them there and God will bless them in their secular studies. Since God wants witnesses in all kinds of uh, fields and all kinds of work uh, environments and all, and all the rest. And so he blesses them here at the University of Babylon, or whatever the, the title was. And they were number one, two, three, and four in their class. Not only were they the tops of their class, but they actually were better than the existing people. Notice in verse 20, As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. All right. Now here is the what I call the spiritual advisory board, the magicians and the conjurers. Pagan kings of this of this time in the ancient world would have obviously they would have military advisors, their generals and their military commanders that oversaw their military forces. They would have economic advisors, their various tax collectors and and uh, accountants and keepers of the treasury and so forth. Um in fact, the Babylonians did real well with that because they had an excellent system for dividing out the labor and then keeping track of the cheaters. <laughs> All right. So uh, they, they didn't mind the embezzlement as long as they learned where it was going and kept a control on it. Uh, Persians did even better than the Babylonians, by the way. But they had military advisors. They had economic advisors. They had um, staff in a variety of areas, including the supernatural. All right. Keep in mind now they're pagans. They don't have the understanding of the one true God. They don't have, uh, we're not talking about Israel having the, the word of God revealed to them. They're pagans. And they have a lot of fear with respect to the gods and all the superstitions of all the, the different things. All right. And the only reason they know that their gods are superior to the Assyrians' gods, for example, is because they whooped up on the Assyrians. See. <laughs> And so, since we defeated the Assyrians, obviously our gods were more powerful than their gods. And that's the nature of the paganism in the ancient world and the, the, uh, the fear and all the rest that was associated with, uh, with these false gods. And so, clearly, they have all of these, uh, they, they're very thankful for Bel, and they're very thankful for um, uh, Ishtar, and they're very thankful for the whole realm of the, of the Babylonian pantheon because they helped them to destroy the Assyrians. Okay, And they became the, the superpower of their day. Now here's these magicians and conjurers. These uh, 
are the forerunners of what will ultimately become the Magi, this college of Magi. All right? And they're already in existence. Now, here's these kids, little foreign kids. <laughs> All right? These little Jewish boys that were prisoners at probably 10, 12. All right? Any older than that, they would have been in the army. So we know that they're youths, they're the boys. And they're not soldiers, they're boys. And they're put through school and they learn a language that's not their native language and they, they excel. Not only are they tops of their class, that's what I'm trying to get across this morning. Not only are they tops of their class, but when they graduate, this is not true today, you know, they graduate and they get put in the workplace and they're ten times better than the people that are already there. All right? It's like taking a, an engineering student and he graduates from engineering school or a law student who graduates from law school and his first day with the firm and he's far and away better than the existing people that have already been there that have been working on the job for years. Okay? That doesn't happen normally. <laughs> In fact, usually the, the, the snot-nosed kid that gets right out of school who thinks he knows everything um, usually has to get knocked down a few pegs by the people that are already in that career to say, all right, you got a lot of education, but here's how the job really works. And the experience of these existing people, and whether it's law, engineering, medicine, or whatever, that have been doing the job uh, are able to extend additional training beyond what the school was able to do, say. Anyway, I, I find this to be extraordinary, that they, because of the grace of God and the favor of God as he as he gives this wisdom and knowledge and discernment and the esteem in the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar that not only are they the tops of their academic class, but they're immediately placed in positions of trust over existing uh, astrologers, existing wise men. So when we get into chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar starts having these dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. All right, his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And the king gave orders to call the magicians, the conjurers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. Now here's, here's the divisions of the college of the Magi. And some of them are magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, Chaldeans. All right, Four divisions of this college of the Magi to tell the king his dreams. And they came in and they stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dreams. So you understand where this supernatural advisory board, as I call it, he doesn't call us military, he doesn't call us economic advisors, he calls the, the, you know, the, the supernatural crowd. He says, explain this to me. These would be his priests and all the rest. And the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, and then from here on, for several chapters, the text of this is in Aramaic rather than in Hebrew. O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. And the king says, oh, no. <laughs> no, no. You're going to tell me the dream and the interpretation. The command for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be made a rubbish heap. But if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward of great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. See, now they start stalling for time and they say, well, you know, we need the dream first and we'll tell you the interpretation. <laughs> I love this. You know, I could teach this. I, I, this is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. And the king said, you're just stalling. I know for certain that you're bargaining for time. And as much as you have seen that the command from me is firm, 
And if you do not make the dream known to me, for there is only one decree for you. You've all agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words. <laughs> if I tell you the dream, you've already got this prearranged. See, Nebuchadnezzar didn't have a lot of trust for these guys. Thought they were phonies. See, he could understand the military guys. He was a military guy. He could understand the money guys because he loved spending money. But he was not convinced that these religious, you know, mumbo-jumbo, hocus-pocus, bunch of fruitcakes. Which is probably why he's uh, able to get saved here very shortly. That he's not uh, sold down their road of astrology and the road of demonism and all the rest. He thought it was a bunch of garbage. And then when... He gets the gospel from Daniel and his three friends and so forth. Nebuchadnezzar becomes a believer here in these early chapters in Daniel. So um, he says in verse 9, Tell me the dream that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. When you tell me what the dream was, I'll know that you can legitimately tell me the interpretation. So the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who could declare the matter before the king, inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, Chaldean. You know, the Egyptians have their spiritual crew. The Assyrians had theirs before you wiped them out. The, uh, you know, all the ancient people would have, you know, these, these sorcerers on hand. You know, the Satan loved to put, you know, demonologists in, uh, in various political offices to be the advisors to the king, the, the uh, power behind the throne, and the influence in, in human political affairs. And he says, you know, you're asking something of us that no king has ever asked of. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. And I love the way the Lord takes these statements of these unbelievers, these demonic unbelievers, and uses them for his glory. Because even these demonic unbelievers are admitting that only God, they use God's, but only a divine being could read minds. The demons can't read minds. The demons don't know what are in these dreams. I find that to be interesting. Now, if they were demonic dreams, they would know, right? Satanic dreams, if, it, if these were coming from Satan, uh, demons or Satan, then yeah, they would know the dream because they were behind it. But this dream is from God. And they're clueless. So, because of this, the king became indignant and very furious, gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. See, now they were apart, they were classified as wise men, but they were shoved off to the side. They aren't included in this initial, uh, in this initial uh, work here to tell the king's dream. Anyway, we know how this turns out now. Daniel's able to answer the dream. God gives the revelation to him. He's able to tell what the dream is, what it means, and he uh, testifies here. And not for his own glory, but he says, you know what? There is a God in heaven, and he reveals these things. And uh, he gives uh, testimony, not for himself, but for, uh, for the Lord. Notice verse 27. Daniel answered, before the king and said, as for the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. He said, your whole spiritual advisory board is useless. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Daniel uses this as an opportunity to give God consciousness, to give an exposure to the God of heaven. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. And he goes and he 
lays it on out. Tells what the dream was, tells what the interpretation is. So, in any event, here is the crowd. Now, it's quite a difference, isn't it? From Daniel chapters 1 and 2 and these demons and weasels and crybabies and, you know, charlatans and phonies. And by the way, we, we, they come back up again in chapters 3 and 4 and they get real mad at Daniel and they throw him in a lion's den. They get mad at the three friends and they have him thrown in the fiery furnace and a bunch of stuff there. But it's quite a difference from where we're looking at here at Daniel, okay, 600 B.C., to the Magi who are no longer demonic, who are no longer uh, serving Satan and, and the fallen ends there, but are looking for the Messiah, who understand the star for what it is, who travel great distances to offer the worship to the Christ of the Lord. That's a significant difference from the, the Magi of this time in 4 B.C., 5 B.C., shall we say, from just 700 years prior. And what's the difference? What turned that crowd into this crowd? Say, Daniel. <laughs> Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Ezekiel, the ministry of the Jewish people. All right? Believers that get saved like Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, the Persian king the influence of Esther and Mordecai, the things that we see there, the salt and light witness of the Jewish people among the Babylonians and the Persians on down through even after the Greeks conquered, even after the Parthians came in. All right. We have Gentiles that are looking for the Christ from Babylon <laughs> as opposed to Jews who don't want to see the Christ in Jerusalem. All right. And that's a huge difference. So getting back now to Matthew chapter 2, and, a, and it's kind of a long side trip, but I wanted to spend the time on that to, to really highlight the contrast. We've got Gentiles, these Gentile magi, who are here to worship. They came all the way from Babylon, or even further to the east, to worship. Say, and quite likely, if they're... Persians and, and that they're even further east than Babylon. They're coming from Susa. They're coming from Ekbatana. They're coming from Persian realms, what is today modern Iran. All right. But coming from Iraq, Iran, and regions to the east, I don't know that they came all the way from China or the Orient. Okay. But whatever the case, they came from the east. Pretty much by this point of time, um, Zoroastrianism is already starting to spread and Buddhism and Confucianism and so forth, which are demonic. These guys here in Matthew 2 are, are God-fearing and looking for the Christ. So I don't think they came from China, <laughs> all right, with the influences of Buddhism and Zoroastrianism and all the Confucianism that was happening there. But Iraq and Iran is, is clearly a possibility. Now, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Born king of the Jews. They haven't had a king for 600, 570 years. But now a king has been born. Alright? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship. So, Gentiles from the east have come to worship. Jews in Jerusalem are troubled. <laughs> 
Because notice in verse 3, Herod's not by himself there and being troubled. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Natural. He's a king that doesn't want to get replaced. But it does say, all Jerusalem with him. He's not the only one troubled here. Gentiles from the east came to worship. Jews in Jerusalem are troubled. <laughs> Waiting for their Christ. And Gentiles came to tell them about it? See, that's what bugged them. <laughs> All right. Their number is not stated, nor does Scripture call them kings. The Magi were Babylonian and Persian astrologers who had tremendous influence in eastern thrones. They are not rulers, but they influenced rulers. Point B, they came in response to his star. They came in response to his star. Likely an angel. I think given the fact that it appears and it guides and it travels and then it disappears and then it reappears again and it guides and directs and travels, that we're not talking about a uh, an astronomical ball of gas in the galaxy somewhere we're talking about an angel an angelic being angels are commonly called stars in the old testament and the new testament this star's guidance notice though led them to jerusalem not bethlehem i mean if this star traveled all the way to babylon and regions east and, and gathered these wise men however many there were quite likely it was more than three all right we don't know why didn't he take them to bethlehem that's where the baby is, right? We see it here. I mean, uh, in verse 9, uh, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them. See, it makes its reappearance after they leave Herod. Uh, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. When they saw the star. See, the star had disappeared and then it reappeared again, took them into Bethlehem. But why is it? that the star took them, first of all, to Jerusalem. The star's guidance led them to Jerusalem, not to Bethlehem, for a public audience with Herod. A public audience with Herod. Remember, God is not being secretive about this child being born. He has already told shepherds. He has already told the temple with a prophet and prophetess in the temple. Now he is putting the political rulers on notice, that is the Roman officials, that is the designated king, Herod, putting them on notice. So the star's guidance led them to Jerusalem, not Bethlehem, for a public audience with Herod. Uh, it's been a few weeks now, I think, since I brought this up, but the, the hymn that Paul composes here in uh, 1 Timothy as related to the mystery of godliness 1 Timothy 3.16 By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The nature of God the Father in revealing His Christ, in revealing His Son to oops, the human realm and the angelic realm, to Jews and to Gentiles, to kings, and here is the public audience. Now you'll notice 
Herod's not too jazzed about this public audience idea. Because <laughs> in verse 7, what does he do? He secretly calls them. <laughs> See, they appear in broad daylight in the middle of downtown Jerusalem, looking around saying, where is this king? Expecting that, you know, great palaces are being built. Expecting that, that you know, that... Uh, um, that all Jerusalem is now welcoming their king and there's a huge celebration going on and it should be obvious. Alright? It's kind of like, you know, we drove to New Braunfels a couple Saturdays ago and we expected that from the highway all the way into Schlitterbahn there's going to be signs everywhere saying, you know, this way to Schlitterbahn, turn left, turn right, park here. You know, for a town that pretty much has one attraction. <laughs> the one reason why anybody's coming here and then, you know, we want to make sure that you don't get lost. Come in here, find this, spend your money, you know. <laughs> so I wasn't too worried about getting lost on the way to New Braunfels. I figured there's going to be signs everywhere because they're going to want you to find the, 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 the attraction. All right. So these magi show up. And they, they, you know, they figure, hey, this is going to be obvious. The star brought us here. The star disappeared. We should just, you know, look around and we'll see palaces and we'll see people worshiping and we're going to see long lines of people coming to bring treasures and coming to bring gifts and offerings. And they get to town and there's none of that. There's nothing extraordinary going on. Temples aren't being built. Palaces aren't being built. There's no long lines of people that are coming to worship. You'd think that the Jewish people would be lined up at the temple and ready to worship their Messiah, but there's none of it. And so they're looking around and they're, they're asking, well, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is the king that has been born? And this crowd in Jerusalem, starting with Herod and the, and the chief priests and all the rest, are saying, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? It's news to us. Okay. But they take it very seriously, don't they? Herod doesn't just immediately dismiss these guys as a bunch of kooks. They had legitimate reasons for traveling all this distance. You don't just, I mean, these magi, the respect throughout the ancient world for this, for their wisdom and their knowledge and, and the, really the, the heritage of what Daniel left for centuries in the Middle East. Um, and, and likewise, I mean, the demons know who these guys are. And so when they show up to say, the king of the Jews has been born. The demons are very serious that we've got to do something about this. So he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And he's going to take action. And we find a remarkable cooperation between the Herodians and the Sanhedrin here in verse 4. It was not, rather, was not common, but it was common in this instance. All right? Point 3. Herod and all Jerusalem with him was greatly troubled over the birth of a Jewish king. You know, you ever come to somebody with good news and they take it as bad news? <laughs> Isn't that weird? And you, you try, you're ready to share something exciting and you think it's good news and you, you hit them with it and they just think they don't either they don't understand it or they take it the wrong way and they just think, well, that's terrible. They don't like it. Usually that comes about when you have a difference in perspective or a different frame of reference, different standards. You're looking at it with divine viewpoint. They're looking at it with human viewpoint. See? Such as in, in the case here. Greatly troubled over the birth of a Jewish king. Remember, they haven't had a king since um, Zedekiah. And even Zedekiah was not 
the legitimate king, Jeconiah, uh, was the one that was reigning and then taken off into Babylon. Um, they haven't had a king since 586 B.C., since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple, since uh, Jerusalem was left in rubble and the king was carried off into captivity. Now all of a sudden the king's been born? Well, you know, Herod doesn't like that. <laughs> because he's the king that the Romans put in there. And uh, But it's interesting that even the rest of Jerusalem didn't like that. All Jerusalem was troubled with him, it says in verse 3. Now for the idea of being troubled here, sub-point A, we have an aorist passive indicative of terasso, T-A-R-A-S-S-O. And terasso to throw around... Uh, passively here to be thrown around to be thrown into turmoil it's like all of a sudden your thoughts are now all jumbled up you thought everything was going great and all of a sudden something hits you from left field and now you're all stirred up all unsettled that's terrasso terrasso is kind of neat in the active sense but this is passive this is what's happening to his mind terrasso t-a-r-a-s-s-o number 5015 in the strong's index to cause inward turmoil, to stir up, to unsettle. That's in the active sense. In the passive, to be troubled, frightened, or terrified. To be troubled, frightened, or terrified. This is what we're told not to let happen. And we shouldn't let this happen. In fact, if the Word of God is providing the anchor in our soul, then we won't be tossed around. We won't be troubled. Scripture references that you see, I think I double-checked them all, are all passive voices for the verb terasso, including Matthew 2.3, Matthew 14.6, Mark 6.50, Luke 1.12. That was Zechariah in the temple when all of a sudden the angel appeared. <laughs> He's in there doing his priestly duties and poof, here's the angel. Well, he was troubled. Matthew 20, I'm sorry, Luke 24:38, John 12:27, John 14:1 and 27, where he says, "Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me." 1 Peter 3:14. See, if we're stable in our thinking, then we won't be troubled. If the Word of God is molding our thinking, all right. Just a handful of these, then I guess, to pick up the sense of where not only Herod's thinking was, but all Jerusalem with him. I think you're familiar with these. Um, oh, and right away, the first one I'm looking at in, Mark, in Matthew 14, 6, I think is a mistake. I don't see Tarasso in there. Um, where he was troubled. He was grieved in verse 9. All right, Mark 6, 50. I thought I double-checked all these yesterday. Mark 6.50. When they saw him walking on the sea, this is Christ walking on the water, they supposed it was a ghost, a phantasma, a spirit. And they cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. That's the passive of Torasso. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. So have this imagery of fishermen on a boat, and it's nighttime, and he's walking across the water, and they think they see a phantasma, a phantasm, a ghost, 
and they're terrified. That, that was Herod when he heard, when these magi showed up and said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? <laughs> it's like you'd seen a ghost. Like, king of the Jews, what are you talking about? <laughs> All right. Luke one twelve. that's Zacharias in the temple and the angel appeared. You can imagine getting spooked out of your wits when... Uh, <laughs> like the early Sunday morning when Priscilla was in here putting out flower arrangements and stuff at 5.30 in the morning or 6 a.m. and whatever, and I happened to come across and walked in, and she did. She thought she was the only one in the church building. <laughs> and I said, good morning. Man, Priscilla jumped. That was something else. All right. Uh, Luke 24:38. Another use of Tarasso here in the passive. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, Tarasso? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that are designed myself. All right, John 12:27, John 14:1 and 27. First uh, Peter 3:14. Let me grab that one. First Peter 3:14. Good church age application. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense. All right? This is the, the danger in our angelic conflict that we, we can grow fearful. We can be troubled. And yet we're commanded not to be. So Herod is troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Point B. Herod's agitation was matched by all Jerusalem. Pasa Hierosoluma, all Jerusalem. Indicating where the Sanhedrin's priorities were truly placed. Indicating where the Sanhedrin's priorities were truly placed. You would think that they would embrace the coming Christ. Not so. Not so. You know, I'll let you get the point finished. Herod's agitation was matched by all Jerusalem, indicating where the Sanhedrin's priorities were truly placed. This body, the Sanhedrin itself, this council of elders, of scribes, of scholars, you know, the experts in the law, the know-it-alls. This is their equivalent of, of the, the Magi. This is their equivalent of the, of the wise guys that can give counsel to the king. Trust us. We'll, we'll give you good advice. We'll tell you what the Word of God says. So just like Pharaoh had his staff of... of uh, the Egyptian priests, they were the only ones that could decipher the hieroglyphics. They were the ones that could, could uh, run their, their uh, secret you know, uh, college of, of uh, priest magicians. Likewise with the Babylonians. Likewise with all these pagan nations. Now here's the Sanhedrin. We're the scholars. We're the priests. We're the experts in the law. The only ones that were really even trained in Hebrew anymore at this point in time. 
The common Jew on the street spoke Aramaic. But these guys and their influence? Now, it's not uh, coincidental why they might be so fearful of the coming Christ. Why they might be fearful of, uh, of things unfolding the way the Bible says they're going to unfold. Because you know something? They're not in the prophecies. <laughs> you know? When the Christ sits on his throne and the priesthood is reestablished and the Zadokite priesthood is exalted and lifted up, there's nothing in Ezekiel or the other prophecies or elsewhere that talks about the Sanhedrin. You know, a council of, of wise guys and Pharisees that will come along and give counsel to the king. They're not in there. And they like being in charge. They like calling the shots. They like controlling people's lives and telling people what to do. They like people coming to them and saying, you know, is this okay? Is this not okay? How much weight can I carry without breaking the Sabbath law? Uh, how far can I travel without breaking Sabbath law? See? And they set themselves up in the seat of Moses and they set themselves up in charge. And they didn't want to lose that. And time and time again throughout the life of Christ, every time that the Lord broke their rules, they hated it. Not because he was violating the law, but he was breaking their rules. In other words, what they said, the law said. Okay, They accused him of breaking the Sabbath. Well, no, he was breaking their Sabbath rules. He wasn't violating the Sabbath. He was the Lord of the Sabbath. He knew why the Sabbath was given, what the Sabbath intended. He wasn't breaking the Sabbath. He was sure breaking their rules as far as what they said the Sabbath meant. All right. So, we have the, the matching of, the, of Herod's agitation by all Jerusalem, indicating where the Sanhedrin's priorities were truly placed. Matthew 6.21 says, Where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. We know where the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, we know where their heart was. It was in the nice, cushy position they had. You know, the whole, the whole thing was about, let's not rock the boat. Rome was very pleased to let Herod be the king of the Jews so long as he paid their tribute, so long as they didn't revolt, so long as they didn't stage rebellions. If Herod could crush rebellions and keep the people in line and pay his tribute to Rome, Rome was happy. Sanhedrin likewise. Let's not rock the boat. Let's make sure that Herod's happy. We'll make sure that Herod gets his treasure, see, which we can pay you know, out of the treasury, and of course we're getting our kickbacks and all the organized crime that's going on here. The idea is let's just not rock the boat because we're in charge and we like it that way. Point C. Herod knows that this coming king is the expected Christ or Messiah. Herod knows that this coming king is the expected Christ or Messiah. Verse 4, Matthew 2, 4. The Magi show up and they say, where is the king of the Jews? Herod assembles the scribes and the chief priests and says, where is the Christ going to be born? They said, where is the king? Herod goes and says, where's the Christ going to be born? 
Herod made that connection from verse 2 to verse 4. They showed up and said, where's the king? In verse 4, he gathers the the Sanhedrin and he says, where's the Christ going to be born? That link between king and Christ, Herod made that himself. And Herod knew that himself. Herod had an academic understanding of the Jewish scriptures. Even though he's an unbeliever, even though he has no faith in Christ, even though he's worldly minded, looking at this with human viewpoint, he he understands certain factual elements of the scriptures. Do you find that amazing? I don't. Because Satan uses scriptures all the time to twist this lie to that lie, to this promise, and to that false hope, and to that uh, empty religion. You know, the demons have a, have a framework for understanding the, you know, the academic uh, nature of what's in the Word of God. They don't understand the spiritual element of it, of course. And, and I think it's remarkable that when they show up to say, where's the king of the Jews? And, uh, and uh, he says, get right back to you on that. <laughs> Runs over here and grabs the Sanhedrin. Okay. Can you imagine this? Anyway. Um, and he says, where is the Messiah going to be born? That link between king and Messiah. All right. We will return to this next Wednesday. And uh, continue to examine. We will look at the Micah prophecy and the issues here. And then uh, the uh, the Bethlehem prophecy. And then show how rather than come back in public, Herod called them to him in secret in verse 7. And uh, try to keep a lid on it, you know. <laughs> Nowadays we call this damage control. The political operatives come in and they try to kill a story they want to spike it and they want to try to limit the exposure and so rather than come back into a public hearing with all the magi he calls them in secret in verse 7 and shuffles them out of town very quickly sends them off to bethlehem so we'll do some more on this we'll see when they do show up when they do worship how he is worthy of worship and uh the issues there and Wrap this up next week, moving on then to their flight into Egypt, the provision that the Lord made with respect to this particular travel. Do we have any questions? I guess I should wrap up with questions. Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. It was Edomite. He was Edomite. And he married a daughter of the Hasmonean, the Hasmonean king. So he, married, he had a Jewish wife. And uh, he had at least an exposure to the Jewish scriptures. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.